I want to share with you a short announcement. Many of you have been asking members of the, your executive committee who've been involved in the negotiations uh, with Carrollton Christian Academy about usage of, and ownership of the building, have been asking how things went in court, and so we want to make a short statement. Understand that when I make this statement that nothing is over at this point and nothing is completed at this point, so I want to be clear about that. However, in the court the other day, uh, we went again at the county court level, and this time again the judge found in the favor of the church, and we do have, quote, possession of the building from that level. But it is still possible that other legal things may occur, that other things may happen. And so I tell you that not for you to be filled with joy and overwhelming uh, sense of relief, although we were very mindful of your prayers through all of these events, and we appreciate every one of them. I say that to you now at this time before I preach, because I think that the story of the prodigal son, rightly understood, says something to us. And it occurred to me as I was meditating through all that I've been reading and working on in regard to the passage of the text before us, that it's so very familiar to us, that even this text has something to say to each of us about what we're doing collectively as the body of Christ as well as individuals. So I invite your attention uh, with that background. And again, thank you for your participation in what has transpired in your support of those who are leading you. This story is about one who has wasted his inheritance. He's about, it is about one who is called the prodigal, which is literally one who spends recklessly a reckless extravagance, a wasteful kind of response to what one has received. And that has indeed happened to this young man. All that his father had worked for and gained was his. As one of two children, he had the younger portion son of all that, and it was rightfully his. But normally it is not received until the father passes away, although it is possible to ask for it from your father before then, and it is up to the father whether or not he grants it. And in this case, this young man came in and really he used the language of demand. He demanded his share of the inheritance. And for reasons that the scripture does not tell us, his father gave him that share of his inheritance. And then he, he left a short time afterward to celebrate his freedom. And in so celebrating, he did what many young people do before when they have more than they need and are not properly aware and grateful enough for what they have he squandered his inheritance on living it like the high dog, as if it would never come to an end. Following ways that he had not been taught by his father, seeking the way of the lusts of the earth of which he was a part, and in response to that, he became broke. Everything was expended, and he was without money. He found himself then having to take the lowest of all jobs for a Jewish man. He had to feed the pigs of people in another country. Swine were unholy. It was in the midst of that, in the midst of the great famine, that he realized, as he was feeding the pigs, that he was starving, and even the swine were better off than he was. And then the scripture takes a turn in the story. It takes a dramatic turn. It says, then he came to his senses. Now I want to pause for a moment and back up to what we preached about last week, what we heard from God last week about the lost. I want to back up to the context of the lost because this is the same context. It's about the lost being found. 
It's about the heart of God. It's about the kingdom of God and where God rules and how God wishes to rule in our midst. That was the story of Jesus who had gathered together a group of, quote, sinners and was sharing food with them when the scribes and Pharisees saw him and condemned him for what he was doing because he was hanging out with sinners. Not an unusual thing for Jesus, and yet very unusual for the righteous of that day. And so they condemned Jesus for it. It is in response to that that he gave three parables back-to-back, according to the Gospel of Luke, without break or change in between them. The first two were about a sheep and a coin that were lost, and we don't even know why they're lost. It doesn't tell us. What it does tell us is how hard the owners of that which was lost searched for them. What it does tell us is when, it was, when they were found, there was great joy at the lost being found, and they celebrated it. Pharisees, are you listening? And then he goes to this story an entirely kind of different way at the surface, because here is someone who willfully walks away from his father's love and home. He walks away from what he's been taught and what he's been shown, and when he does so, he ends up squandering all that his father had amassed and given him, leaving only his brother's portion. So you see, there's someone who's lost here, just like the coin of the sheep, but here is a willful lostness. And a lot of folks want to preach a lot of sermons about, about how he came to his senses and repeated. In fact, I think in my younger days, I might have been guilty of that. But the reality is, this is not a story about repentance. This is a story about being lost and being found and claimed by the one who owned you or who, to whom you belong. It's a story about God. And it is just that because it is in this context of the scripture that we see these words clearly. When you stray outside the context of a passage of scripture, you can make it mean anything. But this is not predominantly about the repentant, but rather the attitude of the scribes and Pharisees when the lost are being saved. It's about an attitude that says God is happier in heaven with one lost one who is found, that it is about a church full of people who are already his. And when we say that, we believe it, but we kind of curl up inside. We kind of think God needs to spend most of his time with us and less of his time worried about those sinners out there. And God flips the world upside down in the Gospel of Luke and says, they who are lost are more important than you who are found. Are you listening, elder brother? No, he was not. He was not listening because, you see, when the son returns home to the father and the father opens his arms, runs to meet him, does all this uh, outward lying things that show that he's completely accepted, he's restored in his relationship to his father, he gets the robe, he gets the ring, he gets new sandals. He was a mess when he got there. His clothes were falling off, his shoes were probably half worn out. He was a smelly mess. But his father ran to him and gave him all the signs, including killing the fattened calf to celebrate and party with him. That is the church. Now I want to say something about First Methodist Church Carrollton's history. When you were at your best as a church, And some of us were not even in there. I sure wasn't. In the late 1970s, you were a soul-saving machine. When somebody joined the church, they were immediately taught how to witness to others and help them to be saved. You were about evangelism. It was first, second, and third. You were still caring for the body, but you were about evangelism. 
you got to the point where you were worshiping 1,500 people regularly. Remember? Some of you say yes. Some of you were here. You were there then when that was going on at Pearl Street. When the church of Jesus Christ gets its priorities right and follows through with all that that means, then those churches flourish. Period. When we do not, when we appear more like the heart of a Pharisee than the heart of God, as shown in Jesus and the way he lived among us, then we take ourselves out of the picture of blessing and become a sinner in our own right. We become focused and prioritizing that which is not the highest priority in God's heart. How do, and it happens over and over and over again, not just in this church or in any other church, but in all churches. It's a constant battle. You know why? Because I'm just like the little boy at, this, at the table this morning, the children's table where we feed our children. When somebody hurts me and comes back and says, I'm sorry, what did you do? And he says, I'm still mad. <laughs> oh, so are we. So are we. Sometimes, sometimes we find it hard to welcome that sinner back home. The world senses that about us. It's a part of our language, and it takes a real effort to take that kind of Pharisaic self-righteousness, rightful ownership place out of our thinking and to put those who are sinners and not saved before our own needs and desires. But it is clear, predominantly in scriptures, that that is exactly what Jesus did. It is exactly what he calls us to do. It is exactly what the church hungers to become when it has a soul that's caught on fire. It is inviting people to the gospel feast who never expect to be asked to come. There are 10,000 reasons why we should love and cherish what God has given us as his children. And they all point us to others out of gratitude to the one who's already given us everything that we need, not only on earth, but eternally. Having said that, I want to go back to the story because I don't want to get you the end of my sermon. I think I just did, but I'll come back to that anyway, just in case you dozed off on me. Here is Jesus eating with these sinners. Here's the story unwinding, unwinding, and I just want to be very, very honest about this is a this is a story of great pathos. It pushes us at the emotional level. That's why it's so well known by Christians everywhere. It pushes us because it is about a sad experience in life. It pushes us because it's about not only sadness, but it causes us to have pity and sympathy and sorrow for the one we're observing. Picture yourself as that father. You've given your all to your children and to making a life and a future for them. And then your youngest comes to you and says, give me all that's mine. 
And being the father, you probably knew what was coming next. You knew he wasn't going to hang around once he got his inheritance, right? You knew this child was ambitious, impatient. You knew this child had a tendency to jump before he looked. Here's the weird thing. The father gave him his share, even when he didn't have to. And then the son goes out and does just what the father knew he would do, right? Now, this is very tender for some of you. And it should be tender for all of you. If you're very old at all. Who has not watched a son or a daughter turn their back on the things they've been taught by their parents? Who has not watched their grandparents lose their children? Or brothers and sisters lose their siblings because they've turned their back on the faith that they were taught and walked away. What is sadder than to raise your children in the church and then to have them reject you and what you've taught out of rebellion? A certain level of rebellion is normal and natural. We know that. But there's probably little earthly pain that hurts like watching your children walk away from your faith. Now, we need to get that, and we need to get what each of these characters in this story is about. Because the father watching his son walk off is God. In this story, he symbolizes the father who watches all of us at one point or another walk away. He watches us walk away as part of his family. When we have all the benefits at our hand, he watches us turn in and be lo- become lost through no fault of ours at times just because we were not raised in a family that taught us, just because so much stuff had happened in our lives and nobody had ever sought to give us a clear witness about how Jesus could interact with all that stuff in our lives and give us a reason for living that had a faith in Jesus Christ. There are so many ways that we get lost. You don't have time for me to tell them all to you, and I'm not going to try. But every time that happens, we're sad. We're sad when it's our best friend's children who walk out. We're sad when it's a neighbor down the street whose children walk out. We're sad when it's a child or youth, a young man or woman in the church who walks away from Christ. It breaks our heart. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't break your heart, if you can't identify with that father, we need another sermon, but it's not this morning. But just if you're one that don't get so bothered about that, you're in trouble. Do you hear me, church? You're in trouble if you don't identify with watching the lost, for whatever reason, walk away from God. Because the very heart of God is struggling to bring every one of them back in. The very heart of God is like that father who probably every day and every evening and probably four or five times a day stood and peered out into the distance, wondering if today his son would come back. Some of you have already had that experience. And you've wondered, how did the father do that? I don't know. Some of you are saying, well, he never should have gave him all that money. He knew he couldn't handle it. I know. I've wondered that about I've even asked that about God. God, why did you give us all that freedom? Don't you know Bozo over there can't handle it? I try not to stand in front of a mirror when I say that. God has given us so much freedom, and so did this father. You want what's yours? Okay, here it is. I've invested all I've given you, and I've taught you, and now what you do with it is up to you. I'm not going to make you stay home. I'm not going to treat you like you're not an adult. 
I'm not going to tell my 25-year-old. No, you can't do that because it's not right because my 25-year-old is an adult. They have to learn for themselves. It took a lot of courage for that father to give what he had worked so hard for to that child who was a young man, knowing that the probability was he was going to blow it, and he did. But don't forget the end of this story. While the son was off, he made his mistakes without the father's love to correct him. He suddenly remembered his father's love and the comforts of his father's home and what he had when he was there. And the scriptures say he came to his senses. And all the words that follow shows he was a repentant heart. And that, you know, that's a sermon I know that people like to preach. To see, if when we repent and come to God, God meets us. But remember, the coin didn't repent, and God still searched for it. The sheep got lost because it was foolish, not in, because of its own intentional will. We know that because we know what sheep are like. But this son willfully walked away. Three different reasons, same God. Same God. And then with amazement, when that son came home to say he's sorry, the father threw all caution to the side. He didn't ask him. He didn't say when he got home like some of us might. Well, are you going to behave now? You going to go back to school and make good grades if I pay your tuition again? The third time for the same semester? Know that, know that person? One of my best friends was that person. I won't name him which one. You know what his father did? He came back about the third time for more money, and he said, I got a better idea. Why don't you go get a job? Money's over. Amazing thing happened when nobody was paying the bills. He'd already had a share of the family's wealth. He got himself straight, finished school. He wasn't going to a very cheap school at that day. Even in that day, SMU was high. But he never disvalued what he had received from his family again that I know of. He repented. He changed his ways. There's value in that story. There's value in letting children and young adults have their freedom. And in fact, I would say it's a must. It's great if you can teach them that when they're teenagers and they respond to it, but there's always some of us hardheads who are slow to come around. So it is. And every time we see it, it should break our hearts. Now, I made a point about telling you about the verdict of the court. There is no joy in my heart, nor should there be in yours, when two Christian entities are in the court of the land. It's sad for the kingdom of God, it's sad for God, and it's sad for us. And even when we feel like justice has been done and we have won, there's no joy in that winning. We have all lost, whatever the verdict may be. I say that because who knows? Someone may come back. Some entity may come back and ask to be restored. And then do we want to be like we were when we were young? No, you made me mad last week, and you're not playing in my tent this week. No. We can't afford to be that judgmental, can we? We can't. Because that is the heart of the elder son, not the heart of God. Will that be easy? No. I'll confess, it's not easy for me. I doubt it's easy for any of you. 
But this father gave him all the signs of full restoration. The older son, we don't know what he really did. Don't you hate it when Scripture does that to you? You know, he acts like a jerk, and the father says, basically, you're being a jerk. All that I've got is yours. If you think about it literally, all that was left was the other part of his inheritance that he hadn't already given the younger son. So the older son was going to get everything eventually. Now, my question for the older son, and daggummit, Jesus didn't ask me to ask him this and put it in the text. I would have said, do you get it, older son? When dad is gone, are you going to insist that your younger son gets nothing? Are you going to restore him to brotherhood, or are you going to punish him for his mistakes? And what does it look like when some senator wanders into the church, someone not like us, someone who's wandered astray from God, and they walk into the church? Do we have to wait for how long before we fully accept them? For how long before we kill the fatted calf and eat it with them? For how long do we wait before we respond to joy? How much do they have to crawl before we really forgive them, right? I mean, Cal now has beaten Texas two years in a row. I'm not sure I like anybody who's from Cal. Last night, at least they did have the presence of mind to do it while I was sleeping. Joke, right? Joke. Something that really doesn't matter. When a sinner comes back to the church, to the people of God, and says, I forgot what it's like to be one of you, but I want to be one of you again, it takes time for them to learn how to behave again. But when they come, they should get the full deal, full restoration, full love, Full trust. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I know it. I hear it. I hear it coming in my ear. Yeah, but you do that, they might just do it to you again. (laughs) That's right. They might. Unfortunately, nowhere in the text does it address that. In fact, let's take it a step farther. Farther. Every father knows that son probably will be willful again, especially one like his younger one. But he takes him back anyway. Takes him back anyway. This is a picture of the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom parable. It's not just about a a boy who hadn't grown up yet or a son who's resistant and stays at home when he's obedient but really doesn't have the right kind of heart. It's about the father who represents God and what he wants to happen in the kingdom of God. It's how God reigns in love for us all. It's how, as it said in the Gospel Feast, how we all come to the table as sinners and how we're received. Now, can you imagine the scrabble that's sitting around that table where Jesus was eating that day and the church had gathered around them? Look, there's old so-and-so. He used to come to the church. There she is. Her mother was a saint. Now, look at her. And there's Jesus right in the middle of them, talking to them, eating with them, table fellowship, putting them on the same level as him, enveloping him with love like the Bashirs did with a young lady in high school. By the way, they broke the laws at the school probably. No, but your principal doesn't work here, does it, Bob? Okay, we're good then. Don't tell anybody about that. I'm just telling you. But they took that young lady and they loved her and now she's building a life again in a relationship with Christ. And she was living in a pitiful kind of way. If somebody hadn't received her as she was, she would have never become who she is today. 
I'm going to exercise great control and quit. I want to preach one little part of what this text is about, but I think it's the most important part for us. There are many different reasons for people and many different ways that people find themselves lost. But God's heart is always the same. It is joyful when any lost one is found. God not only has great joy when they're found, but God takes the initiative to go to the lost and the sinners, wherever they are, and mix it up with them. That's what Jesus did. He shared life with them. He was not afraid of being tainted himself. He was not worried about what other so-called righteous ones thought. But rather, he was concerned and had the heart of God to save those who were lost. As he said in another place, it's not the sick who, it's not the well who need the doctor, but the sick. Now, we have to ask ourselves a question. If this is not about repentance, but it's really about God's love for sinners and God's willingness to seek, to forgive, and to welcome with joy the lost who are found, then we have to ask ourselves, why is God so concerned about those people? Wouldn't he be more concerned about our problems as the found? After all, we're keeping the doors of the church open. After all, we're sending missionaries around the world. Not talking about just us. I'm talking about the church in general. Big, big C. And what answer do we get from that? Why is God putting so much emphasis on the one sheep that's lost instead of on the 99 who are found? Answers today, not just questions. Number one. Because every one of the lost sheep is valuable. And every one of the sheep who are found are already safe. Because God has an eternal perspective about life on earth, not just an earthly perspective. One lost one, one soul lost for eternity is worth more of God's attention than 99 who are saved. Because they're already saved. Number two, answer. God cares about the lost because they are valuable to God. The next time you look at the next time you look at someone who is doing awful things, you, you fill in the blanks. I want you to ask yourself this minute you see them and your mind starts to think, look at that smelly guy out there begging for money. Why didn't he get a job? The minute you start to think something negative about someone you assume is lost. I want you to ask yourself the question, how do I feel about that person? How valuable is that piece of humanity to me? How much do I care? Do I have the heart of God for them? Or do I not want to be around them? Everyone is valuable to God. And so, if they're valuable and they become lost, we must seek them out. If we want to follow Jesus, we have to engage the lost where we find them, where they live, in their homes, in their neighborhoods. 
You say, how are we going to do that? Oh, we're, we're planning. And I've decided that January 1 is it. I think the air will have cleared enough. And when January 1 comes, we're going to, to those who have the heart for it. We're going to begin to seek the lost as our number one priority. We're going to have so many ways and opportunities offered to you. You can't help but find one way to do it. I'm going to do something I've never done. Actually, my wife's going to do most of it. She say, well, it's safe because she's not here today. She's ill, taking care of my mama at 91, almost 92 at our house while my sister's on vacation. So let me tell you what Sally's going to do. She's going to finish hanging the pictures in this house in Carrollton, which means I'm going to have to get involved because the garage looks like we just moved in. We've got to finish that. And then I'm going to do some of what she already has done. We're going to invite the people on our street that I don't know other than one or two. I do know Larry and Katie. They happen to live on that street too. But other than that, I've seen a couple of faces. Sally already has some names. But I want to invite them all to come to our house so I can know their names, so I can know what their life is like, so I can meet them and share life with them. Because I'm betting, odds are, there's a good chance that a number of people on my street are not actively engaged in a worshiping community anywhere. I'm, I'm guessing that. But the good thing is, if I find out they all are, well, then there's another street behind me. There's one running diagonal to where my street ends. A long street, a lot of people. Some of our members are on it. I, I can invite them to party to help me help others know that we care about them. We can feed them a hamburger. We can listen to the stories about their prodigals who walked away, because a lot of them in my neighborhood have got grown kids, I think, and then we can talk about the gospel without even saying the name of Jesus first, and then the second time we get together, when somebody decided this was a good thing, it'll get a little more personal. Maybe there's something that somebody really needs that I can help with, that Sally can help with, and before you know it, the loss begin to come home. Now, many of you, I think, are going to be engaged in that. And if you're not, at least I'm going to ask you not to interfere with it. If I bring in somebody who doesn't fit us, you better smile and you better hug them. You better invite them to your Sunday school class. You better eat with them when we're having meals together on Wednesdays or Sundays or whenever. You better treat them like it's your best friend. Because if you don't, if you don't, if you don't, Well, you just won't. <laughs> and you might be part of the reason why they don't find a home in a body of believers. I think that's going to be really hard to explain when I stand before my Lord. Because I think I got a feeling that the first thing Jesus is not going to ask me is, did you keep all my commandments? I think he's going to look right at me and he's going to ask me, did you love everybody you had the chance to love? That's what I think is going to be question number one. I want to be able to at least say, some of the times, Lord, I had some bad years in there. I had some bad weeks. I had some bad months. But I really did try 
And I know you're looking right at my heart and you know whether it's true or not. But I really did try. Because you loved me that way first. We're going to help you know how to say it. We're going to suggest ways you can do it. Individually, as groups, and as a body of Christ. And then we're going to plan for it and we're going to spend your money for it. Just warning you up front. Because, you know, some, of, some people may say, well, I don't want to be part of that church. Okay. Well, be quiet. Move to the side. Or go somewhere else. You can invite somebody to go somewhere else. I don't ever do that. I, why would I invite somebody to go somewhere else? We've got the best church in town right here, right? At least we believe that, right? We've got the biggest heart as any other church, right? I believe if they come, we'll love them into that close fellowship with God that will fix all the other stuff. It'll be a new robe for them. It'll be a new pair of sandals. It'll be the reality that people love them. I think I'm probably over. I am. But I'm still early for some Sundays, so I'm going to be quiet and pray because I think it's time. You think it's time? Okay. River says it's time. Let's pray. Father, it's so hard to be like you. You're so forgiving. You're so gracious, and we have to work at it. Help us when we make an effort to work at it to be like you, that, that we see the results of it, we feel the results of it in our hearts and our minds, the way we think and the way we feel about other people around us. Rescue us from ourselves. Rescue us from our level of comfort. And move us out to where those who don't know you are wandering around. The lost ones of our world that we might embrace them and love them and help in some small way to move them back toward you. As we stand and sing this morning, Lord, if there's one here that needs to come to you, let them come. If there's anyone here, Lord, who's looking for a fellowship of believers to be a part of, let them come as we stand and sing together this closing song.